So what my study did is it took traditional self-efficacy interventions. So for context, those are things that educators completely outside of the context of virtual reality will use to motivate student self-efficacy. So those are um, emphasizing student choice, providing positive feedback, and um, providing peer examples of success, right? So why do those work? Well, student choice works because the logic is if you're letting students pick the assignments they work on or have more say on what they work on, it'll make them more motivated because they can already see how their actions have led to outcomes on the assignment. Um, if you have positive peer success, right? So if I see David over here acing all his math tests, that'll make me think, okay, if he can do it, I can do it too, mm -hmm. right? That's different than seeing um, a YouTube video of David who lives on the other side of the country yeah. acing his math tests, who doesn't go to the same school as me, right? There's a bit of a different um, effect on self-efficacy there. Um, and then the third is helpful feedback. And what I mean by helpful is it's feedback that's emphasizing students' actions. So that means saying something like, you did well because you paid attention, or you did well because you studied. Those are helpful because they link the students' outcomes to their actions. If you say something like, you did well because you're smart, or you did well because you're brilliant, you know, that's not necessarily helpful because it's not linking their outcome to the action, right? So I basically applied those into a VR context by, um, by basically like providing students with a successful peer who demoed the experiment beforehand um, versus a control group that just saw a generic tutorial video. Um, and then the student choice was emphasized because people in the group with the interventions could pick what painting they wanted to draw. Yeah, anyways, they could pick their VR task. Um, and they received helpful feedback in the while they were performing the task, right? And overall, the outcome was that the group that received these interventions had a much higher self-efficacy, right? That was statistically significant. Um, and the implication of that essentially is that VR design and educators, or VR designers and educators, there we go, um, should actually try to incorporate those interventions or those principles of increasing self-efficacy, and they should try to incorporate those in their own uses of self-efficacy in the classroom, right? So that could look like, for example, um, a student uh, who is able to use virtual reality demoing virtual reality before all the other students use it so that they can see that it works, that sort of thing. Welcome to David Talks With. I am David Jong, your host for this podcast. The following is a conversation with Ian Dalmas. Ian is a rising senior at Wayne Academy. He is passionate about science and engineering. Over the past year, he conducted research on the relationship between educational VR and self-efficacy, which yielded some promising results. In this episode, we'll discuss his study along with related topics such as the metaverse, artificial intelligence, education, and more. This is a David Talks with podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcast, as well as my YouTube channel called David Talks With. If you would like to become a guest on the podcast or connect with me, please visit www.bdavidjohn.com. That is the letter B. To understand more about the ethical usage of artificial intelligence in this contemporary era, please support the Ethical AI Project by visiting the webpage at www.ethicalaipro and joining our mailing list. As always, the links are in the description below. And now, friends, here's Ian Dalmas.
So Ian, uh, do you mind briefly introducing yourself? Oh, my name is Ian Dalmas. Uh, I'm a rising senior at Wheaton Academy. Very epic. So you recently conducted a study on virtual reality and self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. Explain what that's about. Right. So this was for um, one of the classes I was in called AP Research, where basically uh, everyone does a research project. So my research project was um, analyzing a specific variable. So, and what that variable is is self-efficacy. So what is self-efficacy? Self-efficacy is a person's self-perception of their ability to achieve any given outcome. And I know that's like, oof, that probably like, it's, un it's unhelpful. Um, but anyways, self-efficacy is kind of like confidence. That's, it's not exactly what it is, but it's a helpful way of thinking about it. Um, and it's something that educators want to optimize for, right? Because it, it has good results High self-efficacy is good for students. That's something that the literature uh, establishes pretty well. Um, so what I did is I looked at some interventions that educators traditionally use to increase self-efficacy in students, and I did those in a virtual reality environment to see if the, what the effects were on student self-efficacy. Now, why was I doing it in VR? Well, that's because that's like the untested frontier, right? That was the gap in the research. And also because VR on its own has been shown to increase self-efficacy in students. So basically, the question of the study is, do those benefits harmonize or do they not, right? And what I found is that they actually do. So that was, that's the research paper, like a, the, the abstract of it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, VR does sound pretty amazing to students and probably using it would get them more interested in the stuff they're in they'd want to learn, like mm -hmm. biology or astronomy or maybe math. So, mm -hmm. And not just the STEM fields, but also like arts or stuff like that. So I can definitely see a lot of educational applications. Now, do you think schools should adapt VR maybe into their curriculum eventually? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the things as I did this project, I began to see all the different um, applications for VR and virtual reality. But I'm not so much of a VR apologist where I think it should be shoehorned into every classroom because of course there's drawbacks to VR and that's one of the reasons why the paper is important because there's drawbacks and benefits to VR in all situations right and one of those benefits is self-efficacy and with um, pedagogical and like educational and design uh, decisions we can try to maximize the benefits on self-efficacy so that was like my um, kind of niche on it but I think overall, there's definitely cost uh, drawbacks to VR. Obviously, there's time drawbacks to VR. And also, something that isn't really talked about a ton is that there's a cognitive load drawback to VR. Essentially, when you're in a VR environment, your brain is being overloaded because it's so like immersive and you're literally like, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. I can, I, I can understand that feeling. Like when you see so many things that are coming into your brain and so. It's like real in a sense, but it's also not reality. So there is this kind of misconception that's going on. Yeah, that that effect on the brain is definitely something that um, can negative imp imp negatively impact learning, right? So it's definitely one of the negatives of using VR in that kind of context. Mm -hmm. How about like the cost for it, VR? Is it expensive or is it affordable? Yeah, I would say VR is still pretty expensive, right? So I would say the the truest um, headset that's like a full headset that can do everything that you want a VR headset to do is the Oculus Quest 2, or actually it's the Meta Quest 2 now because they rebranded. Um, and that's going to run you about $300, probably a little bit more. Um, 
And that's pretty high, right? That's, that's a steep cost, but there's some alternatives. So one of those is Google Cardboard, right? Which you can get for little to no cost. And all that is, is it's like a phone and then you put it inside a cardboard cutout that you can make pretty easily. Yeah. Um, and that, that also works for VR. So in the studies I looked at, um, some of them featured kind of that higher end VR, right? Like that's several hundred dollars. And some just used uh, Google Cardboard, right? And the effects on self-efficacy and many other out learning outcomes were largely consistent between the two. So I think you can find low cost options um, if you look for them. Uh, so do you mind explaining uh, what VR is for mm -hmm. those who haven't used VR before? So the way I describe VR in the paper is that it's a combination of hardware and software, yeah. right? So on the hardware end, we have things like the mainly the headset and the two controllers, right? And that's pretty pretty self-explanatory. I mean, you can Google it, but like um, there's a headset that you put on your head and then two controllers that act as your hands, right? But I think what, yeah, what really makes VR what it is though is the software, right? So what that is, it's like the 3D virtual environments that um, students can interact with, right? And that interactability part I think is huge um, and often overlooked in the sense because anyone can watch a 3D video on any, like even if you take a 2D um 2D, like, on your computer or something like that. You could still watch a 3D video and move around with your um, finger. But what makes VR VR is that when you look around with your head, you're actually looking around in the world, right? And when you interact with things with your hands, you're actually, like, it's like your hands are moving things, right? You can grab something. You can do a grabbing motion and actually grab something. And that makes VR really intuitive and actually really easy for people to start to use, which is another thing I actually did, like, was pretty crucial to my methodology. Yeah. So we were just talking about Meta, right? We were mm -hmm. discussing the Meta Quest 2. So Meta is a very interesting company. Well, it used to be Facebook, and now it's completely rebranded itself into Meta and mm -hmm. has a really big ambition, a big blueprint of transforming humanity into the matrix. So yeah. what are your thoughts on the Metaverse? Yeah, so I think, I think it's important to draw a distinction between Meta and their Metaverse. And I say that in quotes because like, I'm thinking about Horizon Worlds, which is their platform for the kind of the metaverse they were trying to build and the idea of a metaverse that was coined in the book Snowfield, I believe, a while back. Um, and that that idea of a metaverse has already existed in some shape or form. Um, I read a book on this a while back. I don't know off the top of my head who it's by um, about like a metaverse. And metaverse, there's been many metaverses, you know, which are basically 3D interactive worlds with like digital currencies and things like that. I would say you could even call some of like Roblox or Minecraft kind of metaverse elements um, or metaverse-like at the very least. But I think what Meta has done is really genius is that they've rebranded themselves from Facebook to Meta. So now whenever you use the term metaverse, you're inadvertently referencing the brand, right? It's like Kleenex. You know, you think tissue, but it's actually a brand that is Kleenex, you know? Yeah, that's it's very genius. So if you're interested in starting a company and you want to come up with an interesting name, that's what you should do. Uh, but how about their platform in and of itself? Like, because from the pictures I'm seeing right now, it's basically like Minecraft 2.0, or well, it's even not as good as Minecraft server is. So do you think like they have a lot of potential in that field? Yeah, I would say, I think the best metaverse um, the most well-executed metaverse is one that is 
based on the users, right? One that features user-generated content above everything else. And I think VR had this golden period, kind of like the early internet, where it's before all the big corporate interests got into it. And I think that ended really recently with things like meta and a bunch of like the big buzzword being metaverse, right? And now it's AI and whatever the hype cycle moves on. But I think that there's still a very strong community of developers and users in spaces like VRChat, for example, that create really dynamic, um, all user-generated content, right? And avatars and stuff like that. And it's obviously there's some stuff on VRChat that when you see it's like horrifying and there's, there's some definitely not good stuff there too. But I think when you get a, a community that's user-centered, it's, it's going to be miles better than anything Facebook will create, like Horizon Worlds, um, because it's what the community wants, right? And obviously, there's rules and guidelines that need to be set that maybe aren't always followed great. But I think um, something like VRChat will out, always outpace something like Horizon Worlds. Yeah. I think open sourcing and it's like, like democracy, right? Yeah. Like, Open sourcing is a form of democracy, and I think to get everyone participated is very crucial to the development of any technology, essentially any field. Now, what are the key elements of a metaverse? Oh, here's, all right, so yeah, you're getting back to the question of what a metaverse is, and the guy to talk, the guy to read or watch or listen to on this is Matthew Ball, and he defines metaverses as massively scaled inoperable networks that are real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds that are synchronous, persistent, with unlimited users, individual sense of presence, and continuity of data. So basically the real world, but virtual. Exactly. And I think there's been attempts at this, like uh, Minecraft, Roblox, um, VR chat, that all kind of fit on that definition, but not completely, right? So I would say that's interesting. And again, it came first from Snow Crash. Not snowfield, but yeah. Uh, well, we've also talked about currency, and mm-hmm. that's a key element in the metaverse. So, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? Yeah, what I think of when I think of crypto is well, obviously Bitcoin. Bitcoin fell apart recently, and that was um, pretty pretty tragic to anyone who had a ton of Bitcoin, right? Um, I don't see personally. I don't see. Uh, Bitcoins or NFTs really holding a ton of value because I think um, when you have a currency that doesn't have a ton of real backing, um, it's it's going to fall apart. Um, at least that's my take on it. I'm not an economist or an expert on that by any means. but um, And I think there's environmental concerns as well, which are really valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, well, there are advantages when you compare cryptocurrency to fiat currency because, well, can't really keep on printing money in cryptocurrency, right? Like you have a mm-hmm. fixed number of Bitcoin. And ideally that would make your time preference, which is basically the amount of buying power of the coin uh, higher eventually when everyone's using it. But now that's also way too ideal because we're not using Bitcoin every day. Uh, and essentially most people aren't unless you're on the dark web. I understand the, the point of where this is coming from is that the reality element of the currency is very substantial to the thriving of that currency. <laughs> yeah, let's let's take a tangent over here. So I, we're talking about virtual reality this whole time. What are your thoughts on uh, its counterpart, right? Augmented reality. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with it. I know maybe Apple is working on AR devices. Um, yeah. Apple has done a lot. But definitely there was some AR um, things in the literature as well. And the results are definitely um, positive. 
um, overall. But yeah, so I'm not, again, not too familiar with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, except Pokemon Go, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, that was forever ago. Wow. Let's take a pushback on uh, back to your study. So mm -hmm. we talked about self-efficacy as the key variable, right, mm -hmm. of your of your investigation. And you mentioned that generally scholars agreed that the more self-efficacy you have, the better. Um, is that always true or are there some limiting conditions? Right. So b by and large, um, self-efficacy is a positive trait, right? The two big areas where people think about self-efficacy are addiction and education, and I'll tell you why. So in terms of addiction, if you have someone that's addicted to a drug, um, one thing that matters is how much they believe they can get off it, right? So if you have someone who who is a stronger self, um, self-perception that they can get off it, there's a stronger chance that they will, right? And it also applies in education. It's kind of a weird, like, you'll, you'll see people talking about self-efficacy in therapy and, like, self-help stuff as well, but in terms of the literature, that was the two areas. So, um, and the reason why people care about uh, self-efficacy in education is because if you believe that, um, for example, like, I'm sure you have a very high self-efficacy for, like, math, right? So you, you. you believe um, if you can work hard enough at a problem, you can do, you can do anything, right? Um, or if you study hard enough for a test, then you can do well on the test. It doesn't matter what the test is, you know? Yeah, sufficiently. That's the general motivation. I'm sure like sometimes you just realize, okay, this is way too hard and then I give up. Um, so there are, well then I guess that would be the limiting condition, but generally, yes, like yeah. personally, I believe that I can achieve something. I mean, because it's r rather impossible if I don't believe. Exactly, right? So then you'll, you'll have students, and this is something that I've actually encountered because I volunteer um, with this organization called Puente de Pueblo um, that they help with um, after-school tutoring for teens, or not, for, or yeah, for teens and for elementary school kids. So I help with the elementary school kids. And one thing that I've noticed is that there's kids who I know, who I know are, are smart and are, are able to uh, succeed, but sometimes when I'm tutoring them, it's like they just don't believe that they can do it, yes. right? And that's really hard to get over. And really the way to do that, the biggest predictor of self-efficacy is past experiences, right? So you need to help them and get to the point where they see one success, like they see one good grade, or they see they're able to read that hard sentence or read that book or something like that. Um, and then they believe that if they work at it, they can do it again. They can replicate that. Um, and then that's the snowball effect. It gets a lot easier from there. Yeah. So that's why I think by and large self-efficacy is a positive thing. Well, I'm pretty sure you... Me, uh, measured self-efficacy uh, quantitatively in your mm -hmm. study. So is, how do you do that? Is there a way to measure it? Right, so there's, there's no one way that the literature points to on measuring self-efficacy, but the key principle I had in mind and that kind of reassured me throughout the process was that self-efficacy is an internalized concept, right? There's no, it's not like heart rate, you know what I mean? It's how you think about yourself. That's literally all it is. So in order to measure it, you just have to uh, notice how am I thinking about, or you have to basically figure out one way or another, how is the person thinking about themselves, right? So generally, there's two ways of doing this, quantitatively or, or uh, qualitatively, right? Um, and quantitatively, the reason I gravitated towards that was just because there's no way of, or it's, it, it makes for an easier comparison, because I was comparing because I was comparing resulting self-efficacy between two groups, I wanted to have a number for each group, right? As opposed to just trying to 
um, do sentiment analysis or something like that on interview yeah. responses, which could get pretty wishy-washy. I wanted to have something that was pretty clear and objective to say this group had a higher or lower self-efficacy than the other. And I picked the most common um, self-efficacy scale that I saw in the literature, right? But again, you'll have people, and I assess the questions on a Likert scale, um, but you'll have people doing uh, mixed methods approaches, purely quantitative, purely qualitative, um, just depending on the needs of the study. Yeah, yes. I'm assuming the survey is sort of like some online test. How confident are you in this field, mm -hmm. et cetera? So yeah. are, are these the questions? Yeah, it's by the generalized self-efficacy scale. That's what I used on the right. study, yeah. So the generalized self-efficacy scale. Kind of the industry standard. It's been used for like 20 years. I just noticed that, well, since we mentioned self-efficacy is essentially the extent to which an individual believes they can achieve success mm -hmm. in some certain field or sort of related to their self-confidence. And we know that, well, the drawback for confidence is that if someone is too confident, they're likely also arrogant. Mm. Do you think self-efficacy has the same problem? Well, I would say no, because I think with self-efficacy, there's also um, an implication of work inherent into it, right? So it's the idea, it's not necessarily the idea that I can do anything. It's more, I can do anything if I work hard enough, right? Or it's, if that makes sense? Yeah. But does this also get people into like a loophole? Like if I failed, that means I just didn't try hard enough. So I should keep trying, keep trying. Yeah. I mean, I think, sure. Obviously there's limits, right? No one's, no one's self-efficacy will be a hundred, like a hundred percent the whole time. And no one's self-efficacy will always be consistent across every domain of their life. Oh, definitely. Right. So there's definitely some, some variance there. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably uh, spreads across different fields differently. Mm -hmm. So now that we've evaluated the effects, the benefits and drawbacks of self-efficacy, do you mind explaining the implications of your study? Right. So what my study did is it took traditional self-efficacy interventions. So for context, those are things that educators completely outside of the context of virtual reality will use to motivate student self-efficacy. So those are um, emphasizing student choice, providing positive feedback, and... Um, providing peer examples of success, right? So why do those work? Well, student choice works because the logic is if you're letting students pick the assignments they work on or have more say on what they work on, it'll make them more motivated because they can already see how their actions have led to outcomes on the assignment. Um, if you have positive peer success, right? So if I see David over here acing all his math tests, that'll make me think, okay, if he can do it, I can do it too, mm -hmm. right? That's different than seeing um, a YouTube video of David who lives on the other side of the country yeah. acing his math tests, who doesn't go to the same school as me. Right? There's a bit of a different um, effect on self-efficacy there. Um, and then the third is helpful feedback. And what I mean by helpful is it's feedback that's emphasizing students' actions. So that means saying something like, you did well because you paid attention, or you did well because you studied. Those are helpful because they link the students' outcomes to their actions. If you say something like, you did well because you're smart, or you did well because you're brilliant, you know, that's not necessarily helpful because it's not linking their outcome to the action, right? So I basically applied those into a VR context by, um, by basically like providing students with a successful peer who demoed the experiment beforehand um, versus a control group that just saw a generic tutorial video. Um, and then the student choice was emphasized because people in the group with the interventions could pick what painting they wanted to draw. Yeah, anyways, they could pick their VR task. 
um, and they received helpful feedback in the while they were performing the task, right? And overall, the outcome was that the group that received these interventions had a much higher self-efficacy, right? That was statistically significant. Um, and the implication of that essentially is that VR design and educators, or VR designers and educators, there we go, um, should actually try to incorporate those interventions or those principles of increasing self-efficacy, and they should try to incorporate those in their own uses of self-efficacy in the classroom, right? So that could look like, for example, um, a student uh, who is able to use virtual reality demoing virtual reality before all the other students use it so that they can see that it works, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely very inspiring, especially probably to educators that are interested in adapting technology to their classroom. And speaking of technology, I think another interesting field that is emerging is AI, and mm -hmm. it's took society by storm, actually. And I'm sure most of my audience have probably used any form of AI, especially ChatGPT. And a lot of students, I mean, I'm sure they use a lot of AI assistance. So what are your thoughts on AI and its impacts on education? Yeah, I think one thing with AI that's kind of interesting is... Um, the way I think of it is, if you think of writing, especially ChatGPT and writing, which is kind of the big thing that everyone's talking about, because calculators have existed, Wolfram Alpha has always existed, right? But traditionally in writing, there's three levels, right? There's the grammar and punctuation, all the basic mechanics. That's level one. Level two is things like uh, constructing sentences and paragraphs, building arguments, right? And then level three is style. So obviously... Academic honesty is important, following the rules, and playing on a fair field is important. But ChatGPT can do rows one and two of that pyramid fairly competently, right? Not great, but competently. It's kind of boring, but it works, yeah. right? So if ChatGPT sort of boosts everyone to that third level where they're always thinking about style when they write, I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing because maybe layers one and two aren't just are unnecessary anymore. You know, maybe they're not, but... What are your thoughts on that? I think, well, from an educative perspective, mm -hmm. a lot of people need to develop uh, the foundations to reach the highest level, right? You mm -hmm. need to work on your uh, basic grammar, on your sentences, on your paragraphs and flow before you get to your style, mm -hmm. which really is the soul of your writing. But you need a lot of preparation before that. Mm -hmm. So I would say that for a very experienced writer, for a great writer, a ChatGPT, if, if they even bothered to use it, would be a great assistant because they can just work on the style, as you, as you said, and that would be the ideal situation for an AI assistant. Now, on the other hand, for budding writers, for young writers, for students that just picked up the pen, or I would discourage AI usage because that would just amplify or that would give them the immediate outcome or the instant gratification, so to speak. And they'll get addicted to using ChatGPT mm. for, for their work. But I would say it's very difficult for them to have actual growth in that field, so to speak. Would you say that it's analogous to a calculator in math and that you kind of start out, um, maybe you're doing like addition and multiplication in your earlier years of math education, um, and then eventually... In high school, you get a calculator that can do all those things for you, but then you're like doing like derivatives and stuff, and then it's like, well, you gotta learn how to do the derivative without the calculator, but then eventually you can just put your derivative in your calculator. You know what I mean? Would you say it's analogous? That is yeah, 
there is a parallel between uh, math studying and English development. And because, as you said, we start out doing uh, math with numbers, right? And then we start taking algebra and then we have operators that are pretty abstract. And then if you go to the undergrad or the grad level, it, it just gets more abstract, right? We have uh, weird symbols, we have fields, we have, we have abstract sets. algebra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I would say at the highest level, people probably don't even care about a calculator. Like if you're doing pure math, you don't really need to do math experiments because you're just dealing with concepts that are very abstract at, at that level. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, a calculator wouldn't really help. But I would say that Yes, a calculator does save us work, and that's what we want to see. We don't want people actually doing addition or subtraction or multiplication, etc., in the real-world scenario. We don't want accountants actually adding numbers together. We want mm -hmm. them to use their computer to do the work, but we want them to know how to do it. We want them to study the algorithm, mm -hmm. and that is more important. So same case for English, right? If, if you get the basics solid and sound, then I would say... I would encourage AI usage in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but the important thing is to measure when to add this assistance to these students. Yeah. What would be your sense? Like, when is the point where you can give the calculator to the student, so to speak, and say, like, truthfully, I'm not even sure if that's a helpful tool at some point. I mean... At least until like, I don't know. I don't even know if through college, right? If it's if it's a helpful tool. Well, let's see. The benefit that the tangible benefit of not using a calculator is improving your mental math. Mm -hmm. And I mean, some some may say that's pretty important. Others won't. Uh, it really depends on which side you're coming from. But I would say after a certain level, once you have like a sense of numbers, and that's that's sort of hard to describe, but it's kind of there. Um, a calculator would help because after after you've developed that that notion, the presence of a calculator would just aid your calculations and right. calculations after that point doesn't really help anymore. It's just like, well, mathematicians like to say we can't do arithmetic, right? Yeah. Arithmetic is for other people. So yeah, so if you aspire to be a mathematician or to have further math development, then go ahead and use a calculator, I would say. You're at liberty to do that. But I'm not convinced that there's a point at which you get to, if you're writing, you know, and your career is writing, whether that's journalism or law or, or whatever that is, when your output is writing, I think obviously there's a point where you get your sense for grammar, your sense for sentence structure and things like that. But at least for me personally, I've seen my growth as a writer year over year. year and then I come back to how I was writing before and it's like, there's no baseline there that I want to, like, go and then build off of. I just want to reword everything yes. and make it better. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I have the exact same feeling. And I think that's very important to a writer. Like, you should be seeing your word and then realizing, oh, so silly. Uh, <laughs> or yeah. Maybe not exactly that, but you should have some growth because that's the whole point of living life. Um, and I can totally see that. So I'm not so sure if you can still grow as much if you add in AI assistance in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so back to my idea of proposing like when to use AI in, as an assistant for writing, I think maybe there should be some form of examination hypothetically mm. or some criteria that a student should pass before having access to an AI. 
Now, that's for academic writing purposes. There are also some scenarios in which uh, AI assistant in writing could could be just um, an easy improvement in your workflow. Like, for example, if you're writing an advertisement, well, you need to come up with, with, with catchy stuff, but AI might be able to help you with that. Or if you're uh, trying to write a, write a post for your club page or something like that, that's not as intense or not as important, I would say that using an AI would definitely be suitable to help you. Yeah, I would say for me personally, the AI use cases that I'm most open to are things like um, that are brainstorming related, you know, so if I'm like, if I'm thinking about a name for a project or um, just like trying to spitball ideas and that kind of thing, then I think it's helpful. But I vividly remember I was I was writing an email to someone and then I had ChatGPT kind of do it. And I read the email and I was like, I just want to change everything that's already there. You know, and then I ended up writing my own email and it took as long, you know. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little like picky or particular about my style, you know, but it's like if I'm writing something that's going to be read by other people, my thought is uh, I want to make sure that it's in my voice and it makes sense um, and how I want to write it. And maybe that's just like me being me, whatever. Um, But I think it's definitely helpful if you're trying to like brainstorm or even like summarize things, which I know is like maybe, maybe not the best thing to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So, well, for brainstorming, it's very important to be able to come up with your original ideas mm. because in the end of the day, your ideas matter more than your skills. So, like, AI is very good at replicating a defined process. It's very good at following methods, uh, but it's not so good at coming up with new methods, right? That's where it requires human input. So, mm. I actually think being able to generate your original thoughts and come up with new innovations is pretty important because if you don't exercise that, then you'll, you, you might lose the skill. Yeah. I mean, when I say brainstorming, what I mean is the kind of the way I've, I've been trained in this is you do divergent thinking and then you do convergent thinking. Yeah. So you try to think of as many ideas as you possibly can and there's no bad idea. And then you, you put like the sticky notes on the whiteboard and then you take them all down and you find the one idea that's actually good or maybe the one or two or three ideas that are actually helpful. Um, so you take like the top 5%, right? Yeah. So I think AI is helpful for that divergent thinking aspect when you're just trying to throw around, there's no wrong answers, um, when it's really about creativity or like experimentation and fun, yeah. Yeah. you know? Um, but then when it comes to actually evaluating the ideas and picking one that's actually going to work, I think that that is helpful to do on your own. Yeah, yeah. That's very similar to how I general um, how I generate ideas actually. I try to call it the horizontal and vertical uh, oh. m- model. Yeah, yeah. so you start with one point and then you look along the horizontal line, right? What are some things that are similar to this this p- particular idea, like starting a video, right? Um, like, or like doing a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. This is what we're doing. Uh, maybe I can start a YouTube channel, right? That's vertical thinking or maybe a, a TikTok or something like that, or maybe a blog post, a website, et cetera. And then when, when it comes to vertical thinking, uh, it, it's sort of like the business principle of vertical integration, right? Mm. You're thinking of how to make it better, perfect it, and build it larger. Yeah, so these are very interesting ideas, to say the least. Yeah, I wonder if there's a tie-in between AI and specifically ChatGPT 
and maybe Dolly too. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dolly too as well. <laughs> um, to this idea of self-efficacy because it's giving everyone such powerful tools to write and to generate images that are okay. They're not great. You know what I mean? They're okay. Uh, they definitely have like their own stank to them. But I think it's given people more resources to realize outcomes that maybe they couldn't have before, right? So if I, maybe I couldn't have drawn this cool picture, but I can ask Dolly 2 to draw it, and it comes out with something that's yeah. sort of similar. And I wonder how that'll maybe increase people's self-efficacy, definitely for like using things like AI, but also being able to create and um, do so seamlessly and quickly. That would be a, an interesting research idea, actually. Mm. My initial reaction is it would because with the assistance of AI, you can actually do a lot of uh, tedious jobs and reduce them to uh, simple commands, right? In the in the command line, maybe if you have the ChatGPT API with you, or if you uh, want to generate images, right? Like you don't have to be a great great painter. Well, of course, this is related to the whole uh, AI and art stuff, which there's a lot of controversy and mm-hmm. discussion about, and which we'll also cover in future episodes. But there's also the sense that yes, it does endow you with power to accomplish more things than you've previously imagined. So I would say overall, it does improve people's self-efficacy. Yeah, I would say the one thing that may be working against that is just the idea that it's such a black box of a process. You know what I mean? Like you put it in and it comes out. There's no, there's not much in the middle you can control. You can't really see how it thinks. And I mean, this is a defect in the algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. Because think of a training process, um, really, when, you, when it comes to a neural network, there's the input, and then you have the hidden layers, and then there's the output. And even the researchers can't really look inside the hidden layers and see what's actually going on. Mm. So it's, it, it's really mystical, actually. So you, don't really, you can't really expect what to get from this process. It, it would be interesting, though, to see how ChatGPT thought about generating its text or Dolly with its images. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that actually really draws us to the question of intelligence. Yeah, I think you're going to be, a, <laughs> I think you're a lot more qualified to answer that bad boy than I am. But um, yeah, I learned about the Turing test today. Um, really? Can ChatGPT pass that? You know? Oh, um, that's, that's an interesting question because I saw articles reporting that oh gpt4 is capable of passing the turing test but when i asked it it said that i'm a family-friendly agent and i'm not designed to do that so i'm not going to do that uh and i guess it really depends because well as referred to in my first episode uh the turing test is really a process where there's an interrogator and then uh two contestants who are trying to prove that they're human through a conversation. So there's a robot and there's a person. Now you don't get to see them. So it's just looking at their conversation or listening to or however you'd like to put it. Yeah. And the interrogator has to differentiate whether which one's a human and which one's a robot or whether they're both humans or not. And I would say since ChatGPT has pretty adequate writing skills, it's a competent writer. Mm-hmm. 
just by looking at its articles, I can't really tell if it's ChatGPT or not. Well, granted, AI algorithms can't, right? That's the anti-plagiarism. Are those things successful, though? Uh, well, I'm not really an expert in testing them out, but I'd say generally they are successful because there's a lot of predictability mm. to AI writing. Yeah. Back to the topic, I would say that uh, ChatGPT, or maybe future generations, like maybe GPT-5, when it comes out sometime this year or next year, or if it comes out, would probably be more qualified to pass the test in a definite sense. Now, does passing the test imply that the being is intelligent? Not necessarily. It's a sufficient condition for human-like intelligence, mm -hmm. but it's not necessary. So there's more to talk about in that sense. Yeah. This makes me think of an artist called Virtual Self. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of them. They make um, uh, essentially 2000s dance core kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But what the art direction used is a lot of um, like AI-generated sentences. And this was in 2017. This was way before ChatGPT and all that. But I think there, there is an opportunity thinking about art and stuff like that um, for people who use VR art and interact with it, but also make it their own, right? So virtual self has a very just defined like aesthetic worldview, but it also part of that is AI, right? Because it's also about like virtual reality and virtual worlds and things like that. So I'm curious what you think about that that kind of combination and adapted uh, AI. So, so basically, basically adapting AI, AI into uh, your own project. Addressing the question from an art perspective, just like appreciating art, mm -hmm. I would say that uh, if you're only adapting it, then it would be a source of innovation. Mm. So I would encourage that. That's just like being inspired by any other artist, right? Because essentially the AI input still comes from some human being. But, on, but if you take that to an extreme, like if your art is completely AI generated, yeah. then that's that's plagiarism in a sense, and that triggers a lot of complicated issues. Sure. But I, I think just as a source of inspiration, might as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Yeah. So now let's take another tangent since we've talked about a lot of technology, whether it's VR or AI or AR mm -hmm. um, in our conversation. So let's, let's imagine about the future. Mm. So in 20 years, what do you think people will be interacting with? Like, what devices will they have? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Your guess is probably better than mine. Oh, oh no, we're equally bad at predicting the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say I do see a world in terms of education, right? If you look before everyone would just, you know, like handwrite, but now we have like computers and typing and a lot of, um, especially higher levels of education, um, a lot of the writing is done on a computer, right? So I would say I definitely see a world in which 3D virtual environments are a more central part of the way we experience education because they're just so good, like in some aspects, yeah. right? They're just so good on the immersion. They're so good in the presence. They're so good on the interest. It's the kind of thing where if we can make it accessible, minimize motion sickness and minimize the cognitive load, I don't see why that wouldn't be um, if not a staple, about as common as something like, like this, because we're like in a studio yeah. in um, 
in our school, right? Um, which is something that obviously not every school has, but we have, and it's something that's utilized well and we're very blessed to have, right? So I think um, some sort of like VR lab or 3D lab could totally be something that some schools opt in to invest and that produce great educational benefits. I would aspire, aspire to, to sit maybe in the future with my VR headset on my head mm. and come into this virtual space and talk to you in your virtual figure and sit on this table and feel like as if we were in reality. And this would actually be interesting experience. Yeah. Well, I know there is this one comedy club. I'm not going to look it up, but that basically does shows in VR and also in person at the same time. It's kind of weird. I think there's definitely something to even like human interaction. It's so much better than like a Zoom call or a Google Meets yeah. call um, because you can actually make eye contact. There's gestures. If you have full body tracking, you know, yeah. it works really well in something like VR chat. Maybe not as well in like Horizon Worlds because the avatars are a little more simple. But there is really something to that. But I definitely don't want to live in a world where VR is sort of drawn out to the extent that it overrides um, reality. Reality, yeah, and, and human connection. Because yeah. I think that would be a net negative by far. Definitely. And, and do you think laptops would still exist in 20 years? Or would they uh, be replaced by VR headsets or glasses or smartwatches? I think, I think um, laptops will still exist in 20 years in some form. Because if you look at things like AM radio or FM radio, people still use those, right? even if it's sort of like an older technology, or people will still use like flip phones, right? Um, maybe it'll be cool and retro to have a laptop, but I definitely think they'll still be still be in use. Yeah, yeah. do you think they'd be the dominant device though? Mm, I don't know, and I... Well, well, yeah, it's really hard to predict. If yeah. you would be the new billionaire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, my, my guess is probably not because smartphones didn't, ex or you know what I mean? Like yeah, think yeah. about smartphones. But I don't know what to replace them. And I think VR still has some prominent issues that it has to overcome. And that's kind of reflected by Meta, like, kind of burning out over its Horizon Worlds world, you know, um, which wasn't a success by any means. And I think it's because it wasn't user-focused, user-generated, user-motivated, that kind of thing. But I definitely think there's something in that, in that realm that will take over one day. Yeah, well... Well, I'll be looking forward to that day. Mm -hmm. And I'll, it's been a great conversation, yep. a lot of great content. And so thanks so much for recording this podcast with me. Well, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.